You know, when we, we look at, let's, I want to just zoom out a little bit. We've been talking about Psalm 23 the last few weeks, and I think next week may be the last message. <clears throat> and if we can remember the context here of Psalm 23, the context here is, is, that, is that David is on the run. <clears throat> David is most likely, the, he, he wrote this psalm when his son had usurped his authority, stole the throne from him, and David was running for his life. Can you imagine that, having a son, <clears throat> and you're just running for your life from your son, a son that you deeply love? And he's going through a lot of emotions at this point. He's he's um, feels betrayed, yet at the same time, he feels love for his son. And this is really an amazing a moment where it's very easy for him to assign meaning and significance to it in a negative way. And what I want to first say about this is, because we're going to talk about three things today. We're going to talk about the table, the anointing, and the cup. And this morning, I got up real early, as I have been recently. I have a kindergartner in my house, so I'm up usually about 5.30 in the morning. Not with him, but just with the Lord. And was thinking about this, how there are events in our lives. There's events in our lives that we can remember today. Not only events, but people and places. Experiences that we've experienced. Things that we've gone through. And these things can be an amazing, beautiful thing, or it can be something that's very traumatic, very difficult. <clears throat> something that we'll never forget. And I think sometimes when we drive by places that we have history there, uh, we can assign emotion to that geographical location. So if you went to high school and you drive by your high school and that was a good experience, you're going to drive by that school and just unconsciously you're going to have this emotional frame of reference about that high school, whether it was good experience or bad experience. Uh, we, see here, we see this here with, with Jacob. Um, Jacob in Genesis 28, um, he is in a place where he's anticipating meeting his brother Esau. And it looks like it's going not to, going to be a great meeting. And so Esau, so Dave, Dave, um, Jacob here is, is living in this angst, this foreboding sense of oncoming danger. And it's at nighttime and he goes to sleep. He lays down, he makes a rock his pillow. Very interesting. And he's laying there, he's sleeping. And as he's sleeping, he has a vision from God. And can you imagine, and I'm sure you have done this, you've gone to bed at night, depressed, maybe discouraged, maybe in a lot of fear. And because you do that, because we feel that way, and sometimes I think people live in such angst and fear about their lives, maybe guilt and regret, that they maybe even enter into some destructive patterns in their habits. And so, so Jacob here, in his weird way, uh, is going to bed in this very dark place in the middle of nowhere, in the field probably, the wilderness. And he, maybe he's thinking, I'm, I'm such a bad place and I have so much fear that I don't necessarily even feel like I deserve a pillow, but I'm going to um, lay down on this rock because I feel that in some way that, that I don't deserve rest. And that may sound foreign to you, that may sound strange, but we as humans do that. Sometimes we do things to ourselves because we don't really truly believe that we deserve what God has for us. Uh, that is why people, and I think that can happen in the area of food. I think we could just eat food 
Um, like, you know, when we get depressed, we just go down to Whataburger and we just get the biggest burger we can and just pig out. And, you know, like we're just, you know, I don't know. If, I, I've done that. It's just like a really bad day. And you're just like, you know what? I don't care. I'm just going to go just eat, right? <laughs> because I'm not feeling great. And at least that's going to bring me some, some joy. And my wife's back there shaking her head. No, don't do it. Um, and what happens is, is that when we're going through hard times, we, we, we assign meaning to that event. We're assigning, we're assigning significance. We're assigning emotion to that. And here's what's, this is what's happening with Jacob. And I know we're talking about David. We're going to go to David in a second. So Jacob goes to sleep. And as he's sleeping, he sees um, a ladder, something like a ladder that comes down from heaven to earth. And there's angels going up and down that ladder. Commentators state that that's not really a ladder, but stairs. Stairs in the form of like a ziggurat or like a pyramid. And during Jacob's day, that was what they did. People would go up and down these stairs to the top of the ziggurat to meet the God, to have communion with the God, to solicit his, his, um, his presence and entertain his presence. And so they go up and down these stairs. And it was really a, it was really a picture of attainment or striving to approach something that was separated from them, the gods that were separated. Believe me, that happens in Christianity today, doesn't it? And so David here, so Jacob here is sleeping. And what happens? Jesus appears to him at the bottom of the stairs, the bottom of the ladder. What does that mean? It's beautiful. Because Jacob didn't have to climb that ladder to meet God. God came down, condescended, came down those stairs Jesus is a different than all the other gods. He descended. He came down to where Jacob was. He was there, and he met with Jacob, and he spoke to Jacob. And Jacob is asleep here. I think it's unique that he's sleeping. I don't want to get too much into it, but he, he, speaks, to, he speaks to Jacob, and he gives Jacob promise. And he says to Jacob, I have a plan. I have a promise. This is going to be beautiful. I'm with you. I'm not going to forsake you. And then Jacob wakes up, and he says, He's in a state of awe, not fear, but wonder and awe. And that's what the fear of the Lord is. Fear, the fear of the Lord is not this angst or foreboding phobia, but it's a sense of awe and wonder and astonishment and, and, and beauty. And he's looking at the place. What does he say about the place? What an awesome place this is, right? The place of depression, the place of darkness, the place of fear, that place that he assigned and all this emotion of negativity and, and foreboding sense of angst and, and depression and the rock that he slept on. And now he says, what an awesome place this is because the presence of the Lord is here. And the presence of the Lord being at the bottom of the ladder shows up to Jacob and that makes that place amazing and wonderful. And he says, what a wonderful place that is. You know, sometimes when I drive by places, or I'm, I'm certain plate when I'm traveling and maybe I have a bad memory about something and I feel this angst come on me or I have, I have to meet somebody that maybe is tough or maybe, I, you know, like I haven't had a good experience with and that doesn't happen very often. And when it does happen, I can feel the, I can feel the emotions, I can feel the angst. And at that moment, I need to address that. <clears throat> at that moment, I need to say, you know something? Something's off in my soul. Something's off in my thinking. And I need to practice the presence of God. I need to practice the mind of God in this circumstance. Because your emotions are always going to respond to what you think about things. Okay? If you and I think about things in a negative way, our emotions are going to respond to that. 
if you and I are thinking outside of God's mind, which is right here, about something in your life or about church or about your life or about your marriage or about your relationships or your job, if we think outside of that for a moment, then our emotions, if we think outside of God for a moment, our emotions are going to get sick. They're going to be unhealthy because we're not thinking with God. We need to think with God about things. Yeah, we're going to react. Okay, we're going to react. There's going to, there's going to, you know, the flesh is going to come out, but we need to rebound. First John 1, 9. So, okay, that's the flesh. All right, I'm rebounding in the grace of God, the mercy of God. And when we do that, you know what happens? <clears throat> we start assigning new meaning to our circumstances that were negative before. Amen? Right? I know Sorrel's got some great stories, you know, and you can hear these stories and it's like, wow, you know, but it's like so beautiful, you know. She was telling me last week some stories or two weeks ago. And you look back and you can smile with great joy because Jesus showed up at the bottom of the stairs when you were sleeping on a rock. And what does Jacob do? He anoints the rock. I want to talk about that for a minute. Because that rock now previously had a, had a significance, a negative significance. It signified his self-hatred, his self-anger, his self-disgust, his self-discontentment. It, it, it described his poor relationship with Esau and the fear that he had. And so he said, I'm going to just sleep on this rock because that's, that's how I feel like. I know it doesn't make sense, but we do that. We, do, we, we, we engage in self-destructive habits because, because of the state of mind that we are in. And so Jacob's sleeping on this rock. He wakes up. The Lord is in this place. This is amazing. Everything changes and there's brand. And because the Lord shows up, there's brand new significance for that place. And he anoints the rock. And it's beautiful because anointing means that you take, basically it's very simple. And it's not this spectacular, supernatural, sensational thing. But it's basically the, the oil that's being put on a rock or put on an object or put on something that specifies that this, it's a physical manifestation that God made this significant in my life. And because he did, now it has a special meaning in my life and it no longer has the old meaning. Does that make sense? I think addicts, when we're, in a, we're, when we're an addict, and we all are addicts in this room to one, to, in one way or another, we're gonna keep going back to things because we have the wrong association to that experience. We always forget how terrible Egypt was, right? We always forget how ugly it was. We forget, always forget how, how terrible the experience was. And yet when we understand the presence of God, then that changes everything. David here, let's, let's switch to David now. David is on the run. He's, every day he wakes up in this pain. I can't imagine the pain of a father that he's going through. And I'm sure in some way he's blaming himself, right? Because he, he was to blame in some way. And so he's blaming himself. He's thinking, He's thinking, I caused this, this is my fault. I think parental guilt is something that we all struggle with. And it's like, I did this, I'm in some way responsible. And so this is God paying me back. And so David here, there's three things happening in this verse and they all sound very, in Psalm 23, verse five, I wanna read it again. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. It sounds like three different things are happening, but they all are very intricately connected. Focus with me here because this is, this is a beautiful, beautiful theme. David here in Psalm 23 verse 5 goes from protector. Um, he's, he's talking about protector and now he's going, now he's, the theme is changing now from in verse 4. He's a protector. He's, he's my protector to a place now he's where my protector host. He's my host. 
And to understand that, um, we, need to sometime, we need to remember that when the Bible was written, God knew that Gentiles, us, would be reading it. But the audience at the time that was reading this were Jews. And so when Jews are reading this book, they're associating things that are happening in the book that we don't necessarily know. For example, when you in the Orient would go to someone's house and to, um, to visit them, two things were happening. Not only were they your host, but they were also your protector. That means that if someone, if you're in the house, your host was responsible to protect you, right? It's like church a little bit, right? We have, we have, um, you know, we have this church, we have security, right? And, you know, you're our guests. And as we host you, right, there's security. In the Orient, they took it much more seriously. There were, to the best that they could do, their guests were, were protected, and so this is what it means here. The host, it means that, that you prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. Another way to translate this is my oppressors. They are adversaries, but they're not dangerous because we have the guest right. This is what David was singing. I have the guest right. It's a term, guest right. The right of a guest um, with Yahweh. He is safe and secure because in accordance with these customs, the host is responsible to protect his guests from all enemies at all costs. That's us. He's prepared a table. And I think at this moment here, David is feeling very, very vulnerable. You ever feel like you're in a situation where it's not safe? You don't know what's going to happen next. <laughs> you feel very vulnerable, right? The second thing he says, you anoint my head with oil. And the third thing he says, my cup run, runs over. I love this portion of scripture. This is such, I spent hours and hours reading this stuff. And this was so, so rich. It was custom in the East to honor guests by anointing the head with oil. You walk into somebody's house and they're going to pour oil of your head, right? Today we wouldn't do that because we got hair gel, we got styles, you know, like, don't touch my hair. My son's at that place now, like, you know, where style is here to go to school. And you know, he's hugging Gosha before he goes, he goes, mommy, don't touch my hair, you know. But there they would just pour all this oil on your head. And it would just, it would be this special oil. And as it's dripping down, it's like oil is amazing because, you know, if you ever put oil on a, on a wound or something, it, oil is so smooth and so fine, it goes into every crevice, every crack, and it heals. And it, and it, and it makes tender and it makes, it, it breaks up the, the scabbiness, the, the hardness of the wound. And here, David says, you anoint my head with oil. I'm your guest at the table. Here in the wilderness where I'm, I'm in a foreign place, everything's going wrong in my life. I'm now in a place where you are hosting me in the presence of my enemies. And now something else is gonna happen. Something else is gonna happen. You're gonna anoint my head with oil. And he anoints, his head is anointed with oil by the Holy Spirit, by entering into banqueting. We see this in, in Amos 6, 6, and also Luke 7, verse 46. Uh, Jesus walks into the room and there's an anointed, there's a woman there that anoints him with a perfume. This is something here that, that it, was, it was related to entertaining a royal. This is, you know, when we, when, and I, I, want to, I just want to move, I'm going to dig in a little bit deeper into these things in a minute, but my cup runs over. I'm going to get back to the anointing part in a second. When David said my cup runs over, this is um, to a Hebrew mind, um, it's better translated this way. My cup is accelerating. My cup is exhilarating. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Psalm 104 verse 15 captures it very well. The wine that makes glad the heart of man, the oil to make his face shine. What is this saying here? The cup that was given to me by the host, 
by the Lord, Yahweh, the cup of welcome, right? You'd go to somebody's house and they hand, you would be handed a cup of wine that would gladden your heart as you come into the house. It was a cup that was, that was not necessarily overflowing. We have in our English translations, the, the modern translations have my cup is overflowing. A better way to, res, to translate that is that, it is, that it, is, it is the content of the cup is so um, saturating. It, it drenches and soaks the one who drinks it. It is so excellent, the content of the cup in its quality and so ample in its quantity. Listen to this. One writer puts it this way. Yielding forgetfulness of former vain delights. The cup that God gave David in the wilderness at his table in the presence of his enemy was a cup that had the contents that gladdened the heart of David, that overcame him in a way like, you know, in the world, like people drink alcohol and wine to forget their troubles and, and forget everything. But this is a different kind of, this is kind of an intoxication that doesn't bring in um, the lack of clarity of mind or carelessness or familiarity or bad decisions. This is the Holy Spirit that comes in and gladdens the heart. And this is the Holy Spirit that is, that is yes, overflowing, but it, that when you are living and functioning and living in the presence of the Holy Spirit with Jesus standing at the bottom of the stairs and he's talking to you and you're in a very depressed, very difficult, vulnerable place and God's speaking to you, guess what happens? The word, the Holy Spirit, the quickening, Romans 5 verse 5, fills our heart with love and guess what we do? We forget the vain delights. We forget the past. It's not so beautiful. You ever been in a place where where it's just so anointed, so beautiful. Like I, I really feel that our services are blessed and anointed. And, and we just forget, like, you know, not only do we forget the, the, the painful past, but what could compare, like Pastor Adam said, what could compare to being here on Sunday mornings? Because we forget, we forget the vain delights. We forget the pleasure of sin because our cup is so powerful. And it's so influencing. Two things I want to I want to mention here. What is it? What is the anointing? And number two, how do we walk in our anointing? And the second thing I want to just take a minute and explain what that means. How we walk in our anointing. It may not mean what you think it means, but what is the anointing? In the Bible, the word anoint simply means to pour, spread, or rub oil on something or someone. And that's what we've read about Jacob. This anointing is a sovereign act of God. And I want to just kind of dispel some of the religious maybe extreme understandings of what people think the anointing is. God anoints people. People do not anoint other people. We don't see that pattern in the Bible, and I'll explain that in a minute. Biblical statements make it clear that God is the source of the anointing. Jesus Christ is the means of the anointing. That's why he's called the anointed one. And number two, the Holy Spirit is the agent through which believers receive the anointing. It is non-transformable. It is non-transferable. Why do I say that? Because I think that sometimes people go to a meeting and they think, you know, I need to have so-and-so lay their hands on me so I can get their anointing. Or I need my anointing needs to be increased. Or my anointing needs to be activated is a word you can hear sometimes. How to activate your anointing, you know. And the anointing is non-transferable. No one could put their hands on you to share their anointing with you. Because they don't have that power to pass on the anointing. We see this in some major, major religions in the world today where uh, the, next, the next head guy of the religious um, organization is anointed by the laying on of hands. 
And that's not, that is not what we understand anointing to be. And three things that we can say, or four things that we can say about the anointing. The anointing is corporate. And that means that all Christians have been anointed. Uh, there, are not, there are not some Christians who have the anointing and some that do not have the anointing. If you're a Christian, you have been anointed. And that's the verse that Pastor Adam read in Corinthians. Scripture does not indicate different levels of anointing. So saying that someone is so anointed is really redundant. It's like saying to someone, oh, they're so Christian, or that red car is so red, right? It's just redundant. God perfectly and equally anoints every believer. The only difference is, is whether you and I choose to walk into this anointing, to walk in this anointing. Number two, the anointing is automatic, it's permanent, and it's continual. Yeah, I'm going to do some teaching here, okay? Hang in there. It's, it's, it's automatic, it's permanent, and it's continual. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 through 22 does not teach that Christians receive the anointing. Rather, it teaches that we have already gotten it when we got saved. And this just dispels all this, like, the stairs, the going up and down the stairs of the ziggurats of Christianity to meet the God at the top. That's not Christianity. That's paganism. And if there's a church that preaches a message that you've got to climb stairs to reach God at the top, the God who is, who is not necessarily even engaged or, or even concerned about the affairs of men, that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of Jacob. It's the God who comes down the stairs, came to this earth, Jesus Christ, took up a cross, lived his life 30 years, 33 years. We have already received that anointing. We don't need to pray for it. We don't need to tarry for it or anything else like that. The anointing is the standard, somebody put it like this, the anointing is standard equipment of salvation that everyone receives when they place saving faith of Jesus Christ. Likewise, here's another thing you gotta remember, is that it's not only is it permanent, it's automatic, it's permanent, it's continual. We need to remember that likewise, you cannot lose the anointing. You ever hear that? Oh, you're gonna lose your anointing. If you hang out with that girl or that guy or don't let, you know, don't let money steal your anointing, that's, I'm sorry, that we don't, the anointing is not something we can lose. The anointing is something that's very much intricately, critically associated with our position in Jesus Christ. Sin, people, and disobedience cannot steal your anointing any more than sin can steal your salvation. If our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ, and we teach and we understand the Bible teaches eternal security, you're saved, you're born again, grace and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are going to are going to be absolutely responsible for your salvation. And if we deviate, if we, if, we, if we go off track, then we're going to be disciplined. Grace is not irresponsible. And that's when, when someone says, well, you can't preach once saved, always saved. Well, if we were to say that there was something that I could do, think, or say that, that could take away my gift of salvation, that would mean that when Jesus said, it is finished, he was not speaking the truth. It would mean that he, that he was lying. Or not, he was speaking an untruth. And if Jesus is speaking an untruth, wow, that's a dark hole right there that we start going down. If Jesus is speaking something not true, then how can he be Christ? And if he's not Christ, then he's not God. If he's not God, then what is our faith based on? And like Paul said, we are above all men. We are like men, above, uh, like we are like men uh, of most miserable. We are, we are sad cases. And so there's nothing that could take this away, this salvation. You don't need to seek more of an anointing. We already have it. And number three, the, the, the anointing is, act, is directly uh, connected to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the anointing is not about where you are in God. It's about where God is in you. It's a positional reality. It's not something that we need to experience. 
And then fourthly, the, the anointing is for spiritual understanding. And this is where I kind of want to get like how to walk in your anointing. How do we walk in the anointing? The, the anointing is for spiritual understanding. We see this in 1 John 2.20 and 1 John 2.27, where it says, where the apostle John is speaking to a Gnostic crowd. Gnosticism was a, was a philosophy that started in the first 100 years after Christ. It was a philosophy that, that stated that Jesus wasn't truly God. He wasn't truly man, but he was a spirit. And, so, and that he didn't truly die. And so when he rose again, when he resurrected, he was a spirit. And, that, and he was an angel, that he was an angel. And that means, that means everything that's material is bad and ugly and, and sinful. And that's Gnosticism. And Gnosticism also teaches, it's from that Greek word gnosis, which means if you're in the know, you're part of the elite group. Now, do we see that in Christianity today? Do we see that in Christianity? Well, yeah, you know what? You haven't had that experience where you don't have that knowledge or you didn't graduate from such and such school. So you're not in the know. So you're not, you're not, you're not part of the elites. You're not part of the um, accepted. You're not part of the inner circle. So you're out. Jesus never talked like that. Jesus never functioned like that. You could see people in Luke chapter 15, verse one, you saw the, 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 the sinners, I'm so excited I can't talk straight, the sinners and the publicans and the unrighteous tax collectors, they're all following Christ. And if Jesus came today, it would be the same thing. He'd be making all the religious and all the professionally and, and the spiritual mafia out there upset. And, he'd all, and pe- the common folk like us would be glad to hear him speak. That's the way it would be with Jesus Christ. Because he's not this exclusive, holier than thou. He came, to, he came to pay for sin in the flesh. And so the anointing, the anointing is for spiritual understanding. And this anointing, and this is often neglected because we misunderstand the work of the Holy Spirit. We think it's something sensational or like spiritualistic. But the Holy Spirit is given to us for understanding. So that we would understand everything that is ours in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is symbolized by many things in the Bible, such as wind, living water, fire, power, right? However, 1 John 2.27 is particularly sweet, and it's very beautiful because this is, 1 John is being written, I think, to like a group of people that would be like us today. And he's saying here that, that, that the Holy Spirit is an anointing, and this teaching of the Holy Spirit teaches us by an anointing. And I think that when we're sitting in a, a service like this, or we're here Wednesday night, or class Monday night, or Saturday afternoon for out for our classes before outreach. When we sit there, we sense an anointing. We sense this, and it's not this wild, unpredictable, scary, um, unknowable experience, which we can see sometimes today in Christianity. It's a, it's like it, the holy, the anointing of the Spirit is oil, and what the oil is, is it is smooth. It is soothing and it's healing. So a very anointed service may be very quiet. It may be very intimate. It may be something that's very healing. And many times people can get healed in a service without even any prayer or any kind of hocus pocus because they're quietly sitting and allowing God to anoint their head in a very difficult situation. And that's why it's very important for us, as I wrap this up, it's very important for us that we live in the teaching of the anointing. Now, the anointing, again, it's not some weird sensational experience. The anointing, let's, let's, let's review that. The anointing, something is anointed when it's already been set apart, when it's already been designated, when it's already been 
when a brand new significance has been put on that object. Let's go back to Jacob. Jacob is sleeping on this rock. It's hard. He's not sleeping very good. He's having a dream. And then what happens? God appears to him and he says, this place is awesome. It's amazing. It's totally different than what I thought. It's not the dark place. And this rock is beautiful. It's a pillow. And I'm going to anoint it. I'm going to anoint it. And that's why we can be healed from situations in our past that really wrecked us. And that to this day, if we assign emotional significance to bad experiences, our thinking is going to be wrong every time we think about that. And then, and you know something, teenagers go through things and they experience these things. And if they don't get healed and if they don't allow the Holy Spirit, the anointing of God to anoint their head, their thinking about the circumstance, then they assign emotions and wrong thinking to that thing. For example, um, premarital sex or intimacy before marriage. That can happen. And there's no condemnation. If that's happened to somebody, then there's healing and there's no condemnation. But if a teenager or a young person goes through that, they can assign this dirty, gross, this is terrible, I hated that, experience to it, so that when they get married to the person that God has for them, the, the man or the woman that is, that is God's choice for them, they come into marriage and they have a wrong frame of reference. It's a rock. And they need to be healed in that. And they need to be healed. They need to understand that you know something? When that happened, you weren't separated from God. God was in the place and he was there. And we can, we can say, you know something? It was dark. It was terrible. It was indescribable. But Jesus was there and he gave me a promise. And he gave me grace. And he gave me hope. And he gave me a word in season. And therefore I can anoint this place. And we look at the worst mistakes in our life. And we could say, you know what? I'm going to pour an anointing on that because it's been paid for. And that which was before like terrible, I don't understand. Now it is something that is healed and God was there, and we no longer see the vain, we don't no longer see the, 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 the vanity, we don't see the pain of it, we can only see like we see here, David says, my cup is overflowing, my head has been anointed with oil, and the cup that he's given me is so intoxicating, it's giving me, some, it's influencing me with something that totally goes outside of, and it totally heals from any vain previous experiences, and this is the power of the cup, this is the power of the cup. We need to be spiritual taught. We need to be spiritually taught. And so I want to say that in the New Testament, access to divine power, right? People are always, and I think there's a part of us, our flesh, there's a part of our flesh that really wants power, Christian power, supernatural power, healing power, you know? And, and there's a part of us, our flesh could really cling to that. We see that in the New Testament where, where we see Paul and Barnabas are like, you know, they're, they're, they're praying over people and there's healing happening. And then there's this Elimus, the sorcerer, I believe that was the guy, comes up and says, what do I have to do to have that power, right? <laughs> it's like, that's the wrong question. Guess, you know how to get power? Crucify, deeply die to your flesh, deeply die to yourself. Allow God to bring you into Psalm 23 circumstances or Genesis 28 circumstances. We're in the Acts class Monday night. and it was so, we, I just love this class. We're in there talking about, you know, Book of Acts. And I think sometimes people say, we really want to have a Book of Acts church. But with the power, the miracles, and, and the communal sharing in, it, it is included suffering, persecution, death, 
<laughs> loss of life, loss of your things. Is that what we really want? No, maybe not. Maybe we don't want that. But if we want to have a book of Acts church, and that's not something that we have to do ourselves, just let God lead you into it. What does it mean to walk in your anointing? Well, first of all, I'd like to say it's not your anointing. It's not your anointing, right? Like I, we can't walk around and say, oh, that's my anointing, like as if I attained it or something. The anointing is personal. The anointing is for you. The anointing is on you. But it came through from Jesus, it came from God through Jesus Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit through the word of God. And that's how it works. Our anointing is, is that very simple. And Watchman Nee says it this way. The anointing is so precious, so precious that because grace flows from the head, Jesus Christ, to the body, the body of Christ, by means of the anointing. The function of the anointing is to maintain the link before, between the head and the body, as well as the link between all members. The anointing is the operation of the Holy Spirit within us. The relationship between the Holy Spirit, Christ, and the church can be, paired, can, can be compared to the nerves in the human body. In short and in closing is this. How do we walk in an anointing? You're anointed already. Whether you feel it or not, there's an anointing in your life. And that's the, because that's the presence of Christ in you, the anointed one. And because he's in you and he's never going to leave you and you're sealed with that anointing through the Holy Spirit as we read in the book of Corinthians earlier. You're anointed. The question is, do I want to walk in that or not? Do I want to walk in the anointing of Christ? How do we do that? Practically, it goes like this. And this is how, I like, to, I like practical application because it just helps me understand. I'm in a circumstance and it's tough. It's Psalm 23. Uh, I'm on the run. Absalom wants to kill me, my own son. I'm in a place, there's a lot of angst, confusion. What about God's promises? What about the anointing I got when I was a shepherd boy? What happens? This is how we function in anointing. Number one, when you feel vulnerable, when you feel unsafe, when you feel like you're in a circumstance where you're just gonna have a panic attack any second, <laughs> you know? And I'm not laughing at that, I'm just laughing because we do, that happens to us. Some of us have external panic attacks and some of us have internal panic attacks right? Saul had a panic attack when he saw Goliath. He was frozen. And what happens? We see that, and guess what happens? We need to understand that in this circumstance, God has prepared a table. Yahweh is my host. Yahweh is my host, and I'm his guest. And if I'm his guest, I'm protected. And so I can be in the household and not worry about the raging adversaries outside. That means I can have an internal communion with truth. I can open the Bible and say, wow, that verse is speaking to me so much, and then text it everybody, right? And like that verse is speaking to me, and like that's your manna. That's number one, a table that's being prepared in the presence of your adversaries, your oppressors. Number two, um, there's, that pr- there's that protection like we talked about, the guest right, the protection of the host, the protector host. Number two, he anoints our head. That means that when I'm in a circumstance that I don't know how to think, choose to think with God. What does his word say? Just get in the word. The word is anointed. It's anointed by God. And you just start reading scripture and just read it out loud. And then sooner or later, your heart's gonna get stirred up. You know what I'm talking about? And you just get stirred up. And then what happens? God begins to anoint your head, your mind. And that's the practical point here. That when you think with God, you're thinking anointed thoughts. You're thinking with Jesus Christ. We have this anointing, Philippians chapter two. We have the mind of Christ 
Think with God. Say, oh, you know what? My emotions right now are reacting to the circumstance. I'm so upset or this and that. And this is so terrible and what's happening in Ukraine. And it's like, I'm depressed. And think with God. Because when you think with God, there's an anointing. Your head's being anointed with oil. And there's that healing in your mind. And guess what happens? When you start thinking properly and you say no to your emotions because your emotions can't think, emotions can't analyze, and emotions can't be objective. They can only react. And when you feel the rage or the depression of emotions, identify it and just look at your thinking and start thinking with God. God is for me. God said something to me like Jacob said in the darkest night. God is with me in Psalm 23. Think with God and you're not, your mind is anointed and then your words are going to be anointed and your actions are going to be anointed. And you're, you know, the anointing is not something that you're necessarily conscious of. Remember the Holy Spirit is the part of the Trinity that never talks about itself. God talks about himself. Jesus talks about himself. Jesus mostly spoke about God. But the Holy Spirit never talks about himself. The Holy Spirit interprets the plan of God, the mind of God, and he empowers and he teaches Christ and he teaches the believer how to walk in that. Do you get it? The Holy Spirit is never talking about itself. So in Christianity, when we have these Holy Spirit movements, it can be sensational, amazing, and very soulish, but the Holy Spirit is never going to be talking about himself. He's going to be talking about one person, and that's Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is going to be talking about Christ. And when you and I are filled with the Holy Spirit, we're going to be Christocentric. We're going to be thinking with God. We're going to be thinking with Christ. And when that happens, we're walking in an anointing. It's not our anointing, but we're starting to function. And that Jesus said this. He said, he goes, I don't say anything of myself. I only say and do what my Father tells me to do. What my, I don't even judge of myself. And I know that maybe this is kind of, I hope this is practical for you. When we start thinking with an anointed mind, we start thinking with the word of God. When we start looking at divine perspective and not the world's perspective of things. And, and be careful how you, what metrics you use to describe a successful work of God. You, be careful what metrics you use to describe to understand what is a, a good marriage or a good family life or a good career. When we do that, the third thing happens. There's the table, there's the anointing, and then there's the cup. Our cup begins to overflow. And you know what happens? Not only is it overflowing, but it's exhilarating. It's like, wow, I'm in the middle of this very dark trial, but somehow I've got joy, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, people are looking at me like, have you lost your mind? You're smiling, and it's just absolutely outrageous what's going on right now in your life. Why? Because I have a cup. I'm drinking the promises of God. The cup that Jesus had was the wrath of God. He drank it, and there's this old poem, I love it. Love drank it up that, to that last dark drop. Now there's only blessings drawn for me. Love that old, old, old hymn. Now the cup that he gives us is a cup of salvation. And we drink that, the promises of God, and it heals us. And we start walking in capacity. I wanted to talk about that today, but I ran out of time. But capacity, I mean, you ever hear somebody say, you know what, I don't have any capacity. I can't cope with life. You know why? Because we're not thinking with God. We're not walking in the anointing. And when you walk in the anointing, guess what? You know, you, live, you may look like you're in bondage or, you know, like here's Paul in chains in jail next to a Roman soldier. And he said, the word of God's not bound. Who can talk like that? You know, like, are you in a situation where you feel like you're bound to like a, an oppressor and you can't get out of this jail and out of the situation? And yet your life is setting people free because there's an anointing in it. In, in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 27, there's an anointing there. And people are saying, wow, how can she be thinking with God in that circumstance? Or how can he be thinking about that? 
in that circumstance because we have an anointing and we walk in it and we're, we're living with capacity. Amen.